Hello, and welcome to Silk Road Rising's In Dialogue, a podcast dedicated to the lively exchange of ideas and experiences. Silk Road Rising is a community-centered art-making and art-service organization rooted in Asian, Middle Eastern, and Muslim experiences. Through live theater, digital media, and arts education, we challenge disinformation, cultivate new narratives, and promote a culture of continuous learning. I'm your host, Jamil Corey, co-founder and co-executive artistic director of Silk Road Rising. On this episode of In Dialogue, I'm continuing the conversation with my dear friend, colleague, and collaborator, Dr. Michael Malik-Najjar, Associate Professor of Theater Arts at the University of Oregon. This is the third of nine conversations I'm having with Malik exploring the Arab American and Middle Eastern American theater movements. In our previous episode, we examined the period from roughly 1880 to the 1967 Arab-Israeli War. And in this episode, we're examining the period following the 1967 war up to the terrorist attacks of September 11, 2001. This conversation was recorded on August 21st, 2019. Welcome, Dr. Michael Malik-Najjar. Obviously, the 67 war shifted things in very dramatic ways uh, in terms of how Arab and Middle Eastern and Muslim peoples were perceived and represented uh, and how we were and were not allowed to represent ourselves. Uh, so if you could give us a sense of that period, you know, the, the years immediately after 67 and, and what changed and how our artists responded to those changes. Well, actually, I'm going to back up just a little bit. The 1952 McCarran-Walter Act uh, excluded immigrants of undesirable political beliefs in the United States. That act predated the 67 war, but what it did was it set the foundation that then led to a lot more of the governmental actions against Middle Easterners that we saw after 67. So um, the 67 war uh, draws very sharp lines between um, American-Israeli alliance um, versus the Arab countries uh, and the countries that are promoting Arabism um, and the Palestinian cause. And with that, uh, with that line, proverbial line in the sand, came the fact that um, Arab uh, portrayals and representations became negative, extremely negative in those years. And as I mentioned earlier, Edward Said's An Arab Portrayed talks about the fact that Arabs are now portrayed with no dimension. They're, they're basically there to be uh, disposed of uh, in, in film uh, and in television. Uh, they are they're simply characters that uh, have no uh, human value. Um, and that does end up playing out in the subsequent films that we start seeing in the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s. Um, we start seeing more portrayals of Arabs as terrorists, portrayals of Arabs as bombers, portrayals of Arabs as uh, uh, burqa-clad women who may be concealing guns and weapons. Uh, children, uh, Arab children are considered terrorists. It's a very sudden and dramatic shift. And uh, Dr. Jack G. Shaheen, who wrote Real Bad Arabs, um, chronicles this shift very clearly and lists all the films that this was done uh, within. So I think this is really the, the terrible aftermath of that war. Not only is 
you know, the, the Palestinian situation exacerbated by the occupation now of many areas that were once uh, considered Palestine. Uh, but now Arabs are portrayed in a very negative, um, fascistic, terroristic fashion. And that really leads to a, a negative self-portrayal within, um, uh, within the American mainstream while Arab American artists are trying to do the opposite. And, and what, what were the forms of resistance? How were Arab-American artists trying to rewrite that narrative or challenge that narrative? Well, one great writer, S.K. Hershewi, wrote a play called An Oasis in Manhattan. And it was about a Christian Lebanese family uh, whose daughter falls in love with a Jewish uh, family, uh, the son of a Jew Jewish family. And so it's about the Arab-Israeli war taking place in a living room, but on a cultural level. And by the end, even though the father has a heart attack and everything goes haywire, they both come together and get married. So I think uh, Arab-American artists were trying to find um, the light at the end of this sort of dark tunnel that they were, that they were finding themselves in. Um, uh, that play is a real hallmark of that period because I really think that what it does is it tries to set up the conditions by which um, Arabs were trying to find affinity with Jewish Americans um, and trying to create some sort of bond that wasn't available in Israel and in Palestine of the time. Um, during that time in the Arab world, extremely politi political plays were being written um, and a lot of the great Arab writers rose up out of that period. They were mixing elements of absurdism, uh, i.e. Samuel Beckett, Eugenie Inesco, with um, elements of Arab theater and traditional Arab performance. And so the Arab theater became very rich, very complicated. And also very introspective and, yeah. and self-critical. Oh, very much so. The, the question about what happened and how did this happen. Exactly. Became exactly. That recurring. The sort of self-loathing of uh, the Arab subject became yeah. uh, something that you found in books like Days of Dust by Halim Barakat and others. It was really a very trying time for Arabs at that moment. But in America, um, Arab American cultural uh, perform, uh, production rather, takes place mainly in poetry. Uh, we start seeing a, a very large group of poets starting to rise in that time. Um, there's also the creation of the AAUG, the uh, American Association of uh, University Graduates. Uh, and these, uh, these uh, Arabs get together and they try to create um, affiliation groups amongst the different Arab Americans, uh, whether they're Egyptian Americans, Palestinian Americans, Lebanese Americans, etc. And they try to create a, a, a new way of going forward and to combat stereotypes, to combat governmental actions, to, to use their voice as university trained uh, journalists, writers, scholars, etc., to speak out against what they saw was the negative perception of Arabs in the media. And so I think what you start to see was the rise of the civil rights movement and the Arab Americans joining that civil rights movement in this uh, particular way. There has probably always been, if we're going to use left-right terms, uh, you know, the, in the political parlance, uh, an Arab-American left. Right. And that left was sharpened somehow. Truly. Uh, in this period we're talking about. And a kind of consciousness that ran counter to the assimilationist drive we spoke about in our last episode. Um, how, how did that play out in terms of, uh, of a new type of Arab-American awareness that we do have, uh, there is, we can analogize our situation to African-Americans or Native Americans or uh, historically oppressed populations in the U.S.? Well, unlike the Arab 
coalition building that was done by Nasser in the Middle East, which was much more in the sense of a military buildup. Um, the graduate students in the United States who were highly educated um, and very politically active decided what we need to do is have a coalition of all of us from the Middle East who identify as Arab speakers. So it didn't matter whether you came from Africa or you came from the Levant, whether you came from uh, Saudi Arabia or whether you came from uh, other parts of the, of the Middle East. There was a desire to say, you know, we are one people and we have to advocate as one people. Um, and the beauty of that is that it also led to other groups like the Arab American Institute and, and like uh, the uh, ADC, the Anti-Arab Discrimination Committee. So there's so much, uh, there's so much rich uh, cultural history that evolves at that time. And I think that the writers of that time were really becoming politically active in their writing of poetry, essays, journalism, etc. There was really a, a desire to uh, attack this problem head on, this problem of misperception, misrepresentation that they had seen in film and television specifically. Um, Playwrights of the period, uh, there was not a great deal of, of playwriting activity at this time. However, there was definitely an awareness that there was a persecution. Um, and again, I listed a whole group of governmental actions that were, uh, that were uh, created against um, Arab Americans, like the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act of 78, the Alien Terrorists and Undesirables Contingency Plan of 87, the Immigration Act of 1990, the Patriot Act of 2001. It goes on and on and on. So I think Arabs and Middle Easterners in this country felt uh, that they were being um, attacked by the media, they were being um, persecuted by the government in many ways, and they were feeling like they were being marginalized in a very negative way that caused them to want to become much more politically active. So the goal was really a type of Arab unity. The goal was a type of pan-Arabism. That's right. And, and perhaps not necessarily, and I'm posing this as a question, yeah. as a, uh, a connection to other civil rights struggles. No. And that's, that is one of the most unfortunate parts, I think, of uh, what occurred in the civil rights struggles of the 60s regarding Middle Easterners specifically, is, again, they were so busy dealing with their own problems that they often eschewed the problems of other groups like African Americans, Asian Americans, and others, for whom they might have the greatest affinity. As a matter of fact, they were all in the same boat, if you will, as far as the way that they were being treated by the US government and by the media. And yet, within that, there was still a desire to cause a separation between the them and us uh, of the African American, Asian Americans, Latino, and the Arab American, Middle Eastern American groups. And I feel that that is a terribly missed opportunity on their part. Was that goal of a type of pan-Arabism, a type of Arab unity, was that, was it realized? Was It was realized among the left. Okay. Um, I, I think that you had a lot of scholars, activists, uh, and artists that believed in that goal and fought for that goal. But at the same time, you had a lot of conservative Arabs that still were very right-wing, very conservative, very religious, um, and did not believe in coalition building with these other groups. And so the, the dichotomy, the split between those Arabs that wanted to assimilate completely and basically bury their, their Middle Eastern or Arab culture, and those that said, no, we are separate and apart and we must fight for our rights, 
I think that's, that bifurcation of the, of the Middle Eastern and Arab community in America led to a lot of what we're seeing now, where we have a lot of left-leaning politics, Arab Americans that believe in a lot of those civil rights principles and the ones that are saying, no, we must stick to a more hardline conservative religious ideology if we're going to survive in this country. And, and perhaps for many of those very conservative people, Arab identity uh, occupies a more sentimental space uh, in their lives or in their understandings of, of, of self. Well, the idea is that you're, you're Arab at home, but you're American outside of the home, right? So, so you basically don't speak Arabic outside. You don't dress in any way that makes you stand out. You eliminate your accent, whatever it may be. You know, there's this sense that you must fully assimilate if you're ever going to make it in America. And then there's the other group that said, well, no, until we have equal rights with everyone else in this country, we're never going to make it in this country. So I think that those are two fundamentally uh, diametrically opposed viewpoints that, that I think we're struggling with now because we can't quite seem to coalesce into one group. We seem to be bifurcating into these smaller groups. What role did the, the larger Palestinian cause and the, the, the issue of Palestinian displacement and, and occupation play in identity formation for Arab Americans at that time? I would say it was seminal. I would say that the Palestinian issue really created, it was a crucible from which came this, this Arab American desire for representation and political action. Um, the problem, of course, is that as the Palestinian struggle became much more complicated and difficult, both here and in the Middle East, those groups found less and less ability to uh, create the coalitions they required. So for instance, if something terrible occurred in the Middle East regarding uh, a Palestinian uh, issue, like say a hijacking or if something terroristic occurred there, um, they would automatically be tarred with the same brush here. So people would say, how can you possibly advocate for those people? They're terrorists. They're causing all of this mayhem. Therefore, if you advocate with them, you are part of them. You are a terrorist. You are part of the problem instead of part of the solution. And the ones on the left in the United States were basically advocating for Palestinian independence, not advocating for the perhaps the terrible things that occurred in the different wars, but rather for their independence. And yet those issues kept getting conflated. I think sometimes accidentally conflated and sometimes very, very consciously conflated by the media and others. And it was a liberationist politic and it was ultimately a politic about civil rights, human rights, exactly. political rights. Um, many Arab Americans found their identities via Palestine. Uh, it became a rallying cry. It became a sort of unifying factor uh, in, in people's lives. Was that reflected on stage or in literature or in uh, you know, the, the cultural production of Arab Americans? Well, there was a play that was done, as a matter of fact, it premiered here in Chicago, that was about um, uh, an Arab American that was uh, detained and basically tortured by the police. Um, and uh, that, that person uh, was branded a terrorist because they had sympathies towards the Palestinian people. Uh, so so it, was, it was appearing on stage. It was something that was in the minds of Arab American uh, playwrights and authors of the time. However, um, they, they really struggled with the fact that they were trying on the one hand to have this liberation politic for the Palestinian people, and on the other, they were constantly placed in the camp of siding with 
terrorists and, and murderers. Uh, th th that, that was something that, that conflation occurred so often that a lot of playwrights started to distance themselves from the Palestinian issue. So a lot of Palestinian American playwrights would attack the issue head on and others might separate themselves from it and say that's not my problem, if you will. I've got other issues to deal with. So the Palestinian issue became in many ways um, quarantined from the larger uh, aesthetic of Arab American playwriting, which is unfortunate because those things, they're intric intricately connected in some ways. So we're talking about the period leading up to 9-11. That's right. Uh, and, and, and of course the period immediately following 9-11 and to the present, Islamophobia has played such a central role Absolutely. in defining Arab and Middle Eastern and South Asian lives. Uh, what was, where did Islamophobia figure into, uh, or, or just awareness of Islam and perhaps negative perceptions of Islam figure into this portrayal of the evil Arab, the scary Arab, you know? I think it's inextricably linked. There was a desire to say that Muslims were the evil other. And it appeared over and over and over again in film and TV. And uh, that, that, it's so pernicious, you know, really, the way that Islam was tarred that way um, was, it, it feels so very much like a, uh, a programmed way of, uh, of, a, of attacking this faith. And the faith then became, uh, the, the racialization of Islam occurs, right? So, so Muslims became, uh, in many ways, uh, all of the, the, the laws that were, uh, originally placed against Arabs and Muslims were now directly placed against Muslims themselves, and, and Muslims specifically from the Middle East. Um, and uh, so what we end up seeing are terrible films like True Lies and others that directly uh, equate Islam with, with murder and terrorism. Um, however, on the stages, there were writers like, for instance, Kathy Haddad's play With Love from Ramallah or uh, Betty Shamia's early work Chocolate and Heat. There were plays that were trying to speak up about the fact that, you know, not all Arabs are Muslims and not all Muslims are Arabs. And they were also trying to talk about what it was like to grow up Arab in this country and even Arab Christian in this country where you became conflated with being Muslim no matter what. Even if you were a Christian from the early days of Jesus from Bethlehem, you were still being called a Muslim somehow. And I think that that misperception has just endured and still does to this day. There was also a conflation with petrodollars, exactly. with oil wealth, oh, and absolutely. with the, the sort of the ascendance of the Arab Gulf states in terms of economic power and, and wielding that power for nefarious reasons yeah. or, um, you, know, if, you know, for ill intent. Uh, that too figured into the representation, that too figured into the imagery. And it didn't help that some Arab Americans actually played into it. So I think of Jamie Farr in Cannonball Run and playing this sleazy, terrible, money-grubbing sheikh who's going around just He's sex mad. All he wants is money and women, uh, Western women, of course. You know, uh, it, it, the, the, that that was also very much a part of the politics of the time to to tar Arabs either as terrorists or as or money grubbing uh, oil. Arabs that were just after our our women, With our Western women. Resources limitless resources, and the ability and to buy influence and uh, and and power. Absolutely, absolutely, and and that that really uh, I think is something 
those, those images are so powerful. If you think about, maybe those of you who are old enough remember the show MASH, you know, and Jamie Farr, who's supposed to be Lebanese uh, in the show, and, uh, and playing Klinger. His actual name is Jamil Farah. That's right, yeah. Jamil Farah. And, uh, and uh, he's playing Klinger, which is not a Lebanese name because it was written about a German character. Anyway, and, uh, he, and he keeps talking about camels and, and deserts and tents and flying carpets. And I'm like, Really? I mean, who are you talking? Lebanon, I think I've seen one camel in Lebanon once, and it was like a sideshow attraction. <laughs> so, you know, the, the conflation of the Middle East is one thing. You know, sand dunes, harems, terrorists, uh, sheiks, and camels. and there, there was just this, the Orientalism continued, but it got morphed and twisted as time went on. And it became uh, less of a sort of... Um, uh, genteel, romantic place, and much more of a dangerous, pernicious place. So films like *Romancing the Stone* or yeah, any number of films that came out in the '80s, '90s—they were all about that idea of if you go there, you will be taken hostage. If you go there, you will be attacked, and and they will, you know, defile your women. And it goes on and on. And you can't trust them. So uh, so uh, there's a film with Samuel Jackson uh, standing on the roof, and there are a bunch of uh, Arabs down there, and a child pulls out a gun, and so they, they gun down an entire group of, of Arab uh, people, men, women, and children, because obviously they were all terrorists. It, it just, it, it's so unfortunate that those pernicious stereotypes not only were perpetuated, but they endured. And they're really, I think that uh, when you look at how, uh, how deeply ingrained they are in the American psyche, it's no wonder that after 9-11 we would see much more uh, anti-Arab, anti-Muslim discrimination occurring. And do you, do you see a connection between this representation and a history of the U.S. government supporting reactionary, autocratic, dictatorial regimes in the, re the idea of the strong man who yeah. needs to control the masses, who needs to, you know, sort of crush the people in order to have some semblance of normalcy or, or peace? Well, you know, the great irony is while we were promoting democracy all over the world, we were backing dictators all over the world. So I, I call the 90s, you know, killing Ronnie's monsters. You know, we had to go around the world taking out Noriega, taking out Saddam Hussein, taking out all of the, the dictators that we propped up for a very long time because they no longer played along. I mean, I, I, I recall uh, one of the Rambo movies, you know, there's Sylvester Stallone uh, fighting with the jihadis against the Russians, right? So at one time that was okay, but then after... 9-11, uh, it's time to take down the jihadis that he was once aligned with. So the schism between our American foreign policy and our American understanding of foreign matters and our daily lives is so broad. Uh, this, I can't believe how few Americans understand Middle Eastern politics, even though we've been deeply uh, ingrained with them for for well over a century now. And uh, I find that to be shocking and, and terrible because if we really took a, a closer look, I think we would understand that we've been saying one thing and doing another for a very long time. And that unfortunately had led to a lot of the blowback that we've seen later on in our, in our history. And did this imagery and you know, this propaganda essentially prep the American psyche somehow for the attacks and the, the, the the backlash, the aftermath. I, I can't see how it didn't. And you know, I, I think that when you when you think back to Hollywood films and the way they've represented so many minority groups, whether they're African Americans or, or Latinos or, or Native Americans or Muslims and Arabs, the 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 stereotyping is so 
deep that it really leaves a searing impression. I, I remember seeing a terrible, uh, like one of the early uh, uh, vacation movies. You remember the National Lampoon Vacation? And the, the, the white family's going through the black neighborhood and they ask for directions and, and people are stealing their car right out from under them, taking off the wheels and the tires. I mean, you know, why, why are these stereotypes allowed, they're racist stereotypes. Why are they allowed to be not only produced but disseminated widely and people still to this day watch them uh, with almost no critical uh, afterthought. And that's, I, I find and that as a be, form of humor. As a, or oh, yes. Oh, it's hilarious, or, isn't it? Yeah. As long as it's not your people being uh, stereotyped. Right. It's, right. it's quite funny. But when it is your people being stereotyped, it's, it's terrible. Um, Jackie Saloom, the great Arab American uh, documentary and, documentarian and filmmaker, created a piece called Planet of the Arabs. And it's on YouTube. You should watch it sometime. But it's, she puts a clip of all the anti-Arab things in films that were done over the 80s. And it just goes on and on and on. And you just can't believe when you, when you see them in succession, you, you just can't believe that that much time, money, and effort were placed into demonizing an entire culture and peoples. It's, it's shocking. And, and it is, in effect, a form of brainwashing, of collective yeah. national brainwashing. One, one couldn't see it another way, really. A heartfelt thank you to our guest, Dr. Michael Malik-Najjar, for such inspiring conversation, and a big thanks to you, our listening audience, for joining us at In Dialogue. Bravo to Alex Gresh for recording and editing this episode, and to Andy Lynn for production managing our show. Over the next six episodes, we'll be continuing our exploration of the Arab American and Middle Eastern American theater movements with Dr. Michael Malik-Najjar. In our next episode, we'll be examining the period from September 11, 2001 to the present. This podcast is a project of Silk Road Rising. As a nonprofit organization, we rely on the support of those who engage and enjoy our work. We hope that you will support our ongoing efforts and consider making a donation. To do so, please visit our website at www.silkroadrising.org. That's silkroadrising.org. Click on donate and thank you for your support. Until next time, keep helping the world heal. <laughs>